When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He'd said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day and night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place from the front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Harioth, between Migdol and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and we've lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped near the sea by Pi-Harioth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified. And they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. But Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians will see today that you, um, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea. On dry ground. 
I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I'll gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who'd been travelling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and it turned into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, The sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back, covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of God displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is God's word. Well, friends, uh, let's uh, pray again and ask God to help us understand his word. Our Father and our God, we know that you have caused scripture to be written for our good so that we might uh, know and understand who you are, know and understand your purposes in your world, and know and understand your son and all that you have done through him. So please help us today, we pray, as we uh, look at this uh, this passage, this seminal moment in Israel's history. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, friends, I want to start this exploration of Exodus in a difficult place. Um, I want to start, I want you to think about what you consider to be the most intractable problem uh, 
facing humanity today? Think hard. Is it social injustice? Is it alcohol and drugs? Is it pure drinking water? Is it overpopulation, disease, war, racism, degradation of our environment, uh, our own personal shortcomings, uh, violence, hatred, poverty, intolerance, bigotry, um, family breakdown? Well, let me say that there is some truth in all of these. There is no doubt that each of these are very significant problems in our world today. They do put our future in doubt. They do threaten world stability. However, according to God, they are not where the heart of the problem is or has been or will be. According to God, the most intractable of human problems is connected with us, with humans. The most intractable human problem is with the heart of humans, their disposition towards independence and towards sin, their inclination to do things their own way without God. In other words, the great problem of our world is human independence. Well, today what we're going to do is have a look at the act of salvation in Old Testament history. And as we do, I want you to ask what it has to say to us about sin. How does it deal with sin, self-interest, self-assertion? How does it impact on the most difficult of all of human problems? So with those questions now sitting in the back of our minds, uh, let's go and turn uh, and open, have your Bibles open and look at the passage with me because we're going to work our way through it. There are various stages to it. Stage number one. Chapters, uh, chapter 13, verses 17 to 22, and uh, look at it with me. We're told three very uh, important, significant things. Look at verse 17. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them, through the road, through the, uh, lead them on the road through the Philistine territory, though it was shorter, for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So here we are, appearing over God's shoulder, as it were. <laughs> and we are led into the thought processes of God by the author of this passage. And he knows, God knows, that his people are not ready for war. First, he leads them by a less dangerous route. He is caring for his people. Second, we are told that the longings and hopes of God's people are about to be realised. That is, God is about to do what they've been waiting for. In verse 19, Moses takes the bones of Joseph with him. In the book of Genesis, we saw Joseph on his deathbed, and there he stared into the future, and he expressed his hope that God would bring his people out of Egypt. And that hope friends, is now about to be realised. That's what's going on in our passage. God will soon rescue his people and give them the land that he promised to Abraham so, so many years ago. We're told that God will be with his people as leader and protector. Look at verse 21 here. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. You see, from now on, in this part of the history of Israel, 
This will be the characteristic way that God leads his people. He will go ahead of them. He will care for them. Uh, it is true that his people are on the edge of uh, realizing God's promises for them, but it won't be without risks, you see. So he'll accompany them. He will lead them like a shepherd and a protector. All right, let's move to chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. God gives some instructions in verses 1 and, one and 2. And he maps out the reasons for those instructions. And he says this. Look at them. Chapter 14, verses 1, following. Then, Moses said to, then the Lord said to Moses, uh, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiaroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephron. And Pharaoh will think, oh, those Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. They're hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden hearts, says God, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I wonder if you can see what God's saying here. Pharaoh will see these aimless, wandering Israelites. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will decide to pursue Israel. That in turn will mean that God will gain glory for himself. Because of his actions, the Egyptians will know, yep, he's the Lord. Again, everything that has eventuated has been according to God's well-laid-out plan. God has known from the beginning. He has planned his activities. He has been purposeful in pursuing them. And his purpose is that he gains glory for himself. That the Egyptians, he says, will know. God's purpose is, you see, that God is known in his world. That he's recognised as the God of all the earth. Now let's look at chapter 14, verses 5 through to 14. Stage 1 has been set, is set in verses 5 to 15. Look in your Bibles with me. As God had predicted, God's, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. He perceives, I've lost this bunch of very valuable labour. So he gathers his forces. He brings out the deadly weapon of ancient, the ancient arsenal. Do you know what it is? The chariot. And these chariots have elite warriors in control. These warriors gather together with their chariots. And in verse 9, they set out against Israel according to God's plan and purpose. Verses 10 to 14, the focus is on the people of God. And we're told a number of things. We're told about their fear. They cry out to God in fear for what is about to happen to them. They see the weapons. They see the chariots. They know what's going on. The word that is used here is the same one used in chapter 2, verse 3, 23, when they cried out to God right back at the beginning of Exodus. There they were crying out to God because of their suffering. In Egypt, now they cry out again to God. And look at verses 11 and 12, and can you hear it? They say to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? 
Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die this way in the desert. They're angry, aren't they? First thing to notice here is their fear, though. They are scared. The second thing to notice is the response of Moses. Have a look at it. He says these words to them. Fear not. Verse 13. Stand firm. Verse 13. See the salvation of the Lord. Verse 13. The Lord will fight for you. 14. Just keep still. God will do it. 14. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? I am in control and I will sort this out. Now comes stage four in verses 15 to 31. God's already provided provided Moses the deliverer. Now Moses is to raise his staff again. In response, God will part the waters. the, The waters will just go back. Just as he divided the land from the sea in Genesis 1, so he'll divide the water here. If he can divide the sea at creation, he can divide the water here in Egypt. And the Israelites will just walk through. Then God will work at the heart of the Egyptians, the other part of the problem, and and they will follow. And as he promised, God will use his hard heartening to gain glory for himself again. Then in verses 19 to 31, things go exactly according to plan, just as God said they would. The waters are driven back. The Israelites do walk through the sea on dry land. The Egyptians pursue them with their symbols of of their might and power, their chariots. And he clogs the chariot wheels and panics them. And the seas fall back into place and the Egyptians are drowned in it. The Pharaoh who set himself up against God and God's creative purposes is overwhelmed by God's creative power. So the chapter ends. Look at verse 31. No, have a look at it. They see the mighty deeds. The Israelites see the great work that has been done by God. They see the mighty deeds of the Egyptians. And so they fear the Lord. They put their trust in him and his servant Moses. Now, sisters and brothers, the first thing I want to do as we reflect on this event today is to remember what we are talking about. You see, this event at the sea has become a model for the way God saves in the rest of the Old Testament. That is, you go back and you say, if he's done this back there, he can do something here. We've seen that throughout Exodus. We've seen this throughout the story of the Bible from Genesis through to Exodus 14. And we'll see it again as the Bible progresses. You see, the God of all the earth is a God who plans. He sees us as we are. He sees his world as it is. He sees his own desire for us in his world. And he plans for how that desire will be put in place by him. Often in the Bible, he then tells his prophets about his plans. He says, I'm about to do this. Then he goes about fulfilling it in accord with the word of his prophets. But no matter how he does it, he does it. He makes his plans and he fulfills them. He is the God of promise and fulfillment. But there's more. The plans of God have a clear focus. Can you see it here? He plans and he acts to fulfill that purpose. And his story is threefold. Why is he doing it? So he might be glorified. 
so his people might be saved and so that Egypt and Israel might know that there is a real God in this world and that Israel might fear him and put their trust in him. Three things, can you see them? His glory, the salvation of his people, and that Israel and Egypt might know that he is the true God. Now, when we put things that way, you can see how the Exodus pattern for God's history is stabilised. Think about it. In the New Testament, we, we learn about God's actions in Jesus. And what do we learn? What do we learn? If you were just to summarise it, what do we learn about Jesus in the New Testament? We learn that Jesus is glorified and through him God is glorified. We learn that God's chosen people will be saved by the saviour of the whole world. We know that the world might know that, that Jesus is God's son and put their trust in God through putting their trust in Jesus. But the third, the, the, the next thing I want you to notice is that each of those purposes are dependent on no one else but. When you look at all those things, are they dependent upon us? No. Are they appointed about some other person? No. No, you see, the purposes of God are totally from God. He alone is the agent of salvation. He alone accomplishes the rescue of Israel. There's no one else around except him. They simply walk through the water. They simply benefit from his actions. They simply trust what God has done for them. And another day passes, as it were. So the events of Exodus, can you hear this? Please, this, if you hear nothing else, this is the thing. The events of Exodus reveal God to us. Do you want to know what God is like? This will show you. They show us the God we know from the rest of the Bible, a God who plans, a God who plans, who alone, who has a purpose, number two, who alone is the agent of human salvation. But there's even more than that. When you look at it closely, the events here reveal that a problem, the problem that has been going on since Genesis 2 and 3. Look back at Exodus 14, verse 11 with me, and the Israelites say to Moses this. Do you remember? I read it to you. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? In other words, they say, you don't know what you're doing, and this is not going to happen. What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Can you hear the enormity of what's going on here? The Israelites simply do not understand. They don't trust in God. Then we move to verse 31. We're told that Israel fears the Lord and trusts in him. But now flip to chapter 15. Have it before you. Verses 22 to 24. Let me read it. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah, bitterness. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Can you hear what's happening here? Three days have passed since God's magnificent rescue against a great nation in all the world. Three measly days since they have been rescued. 
Three days and they're back to grumbling that God is not looking after them. Three days. And as the following chapters wear on, we'll find that they actively rebel against God. And it reaches its full flight in the golden calf incident in chapter 32 after the giving of the law. Can you see what our writer is telling us today? And can you hear the writer's crushing blow? Moses is, in the Old Testament, the great deliverer. This rescue, this deliverance, these acts of power are the foundation stones on which the covenant with God and Israel are made. But not even, not even this rescue or these mighty deeds can deal with the fundamental problem Israel has. You see, the great problem is not their slavery. No. Their great problem is not slavery. Nor is it lack of good leadership. They've got brilliant leadership. It's not their absence from the land. It's not their lack of a leader. Moses is spectacular. (laughs) And he gets even better. Now, what's the great problem of Israel? It's Israel. Israel's great problem is Israel. They bear, you see, the Israelites bear the nature and the disposition of Adam and Eve. They are like Adam and Eve. They bear the nature and disposition of Adam and the point is overwhelming. You see, these plagues, the exodus, the provision of Yahweh, of the Lord, the giving of the law, cannot stop the people of God from being people of sin. Doubting God. The plagues, the provision of the law, the giving of the law, cannot stop the Israelites from rebelling against him in the wilderness. And it will not stop Israel's rebellion throughout their history. If you keep going through their history, it keeps on happening. The Exodus may be the great salvation event in the Old Testament, but the truth of the matter is it didn't solve the fundamental problem that we saw in Genesis 3, human sinfulness. Before, after and even during the rescue, the Israelites are still sinful. Their hearts are still not changed. Sin has still not been dealt with. Psalm 78 makes this very point as it reflects on the Exodus. Listen to this. This is many, many, many years later. The psalmist says, in spite of this, they still sinned. They did not believe his wonders. Friends, Psalm 78 then goes on to indicate the direction in which we took, we have taken to solve this problem. It talks about God's choice of David. It says, well, maybe that will sort out the problem. But you see, not even David was without sin. So we look beyond David to say, well, is there something beyond David that might help us? And we look beyond into the New Testament. Come with me to the book of Hebrews, will you? So open your Bibles, right toward, if you, if you go to the end of the Old Testament and then you just flip back a couple of, 
well, more than a couple of pages, but if you flip back a little bit, you'll arrive, arrive in Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews, you see, is addressed to people who had become Christians, but they were in danger of slipping out of Christian faith or of slipping back to being Jews. The person who wrote Hebrews spends a lot of time, therefore, comparing the old covenant with the new covenant and how one was better than the other. And that covenant, that new covenant, came in through Jesus. At every point, he says, Jesus is superior to the past. He's superior not just because he's God's um, representative. He's not just God's messenger. No, who is he? He is God's son. He is God's son, superior to Moses because Moses was just a servant, where Jesus is God's son. He's superior to Aaron and all the other Old Testament priests. Why? Because they could only just bring this, this blood of animals. And they died. Their priesthood was only transitory. But Jesus is a priest forever. He is a priest forever. He offered his own blood for the sins of humans. His blood, because he was sinless, was sufficient to cleanse any worshipper from sin and a guilty conscience. That's the point of Hebrews 8, verses 7 to 13. You see, the difference between the Old Testament and the, the, and the New is that sin has finally been dealt with in a new covenant where Jesus dies for us. Sin is therefore forgiven before God. You can sleep at night without worrying about God's wrath. There is nothing that stands now. If you are Christian, if you have taken on what God has accomplished in Christ, there is nothing that stands between you and God any longer. God has forgiven your wickedness. He has remembered our sins no more. So friends, I want you to take on board the advice of the writer to the Hebrews and work out how it might apply to you. And we're nearly there. I'm on the last thing, page or so of what I want to say. Stop for a moment. And actually, no, no, let's do a bit more than that. I want you to stand for a moment. Could everyone stand for me? And I want you to look around at your friends that are here, perhaps even wave to them. If it's your wife or husband, give them a kiss, whatever. Friends, if these people are believers in Jesus, they are God's people. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are God's person. That means you are a person at risk. Your danger is you forget God or drift away from him. You can sit down now. With all of that in mind, I wonder if you'll make a commitment with each other today or to each other today. You might want to focus on your commitment to the people that are in your small group. Or you might want to focus on the people you spend time with at church. Or you might want to focus on the people that no one spends time with. 
but I want you to undertake to support and encourage those, these people, these people you looked at earlier on in the Christian faith. Undertake to take an interest in their lives. Pray for them regularly. But do more than pray, friends. Commit yourself to mutual encouragement. Can you hear that? Commit yourself to mutual encouragement. Don't just be pew sitters. Take it on yourself to constantly be urging one another. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't have unbelieving heart. Friends, exhort each other to draw near to God in faith. To hold unswervingly. Here's all the echoes of Hebrews again. To hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. Remembering that he who promised you was faithful. Will you consider seriously and thoughtfully how you might spur one another on to love and good deeds? In your small group, in the large group as we meet together and so on. Friends, church is a wonderful place to belong to. But I want to urge you to see it as a place of ministry. Not a place of just listening. But a place of exercising ministry. It's a place where there are people with doubts and struggles. There'll be them here today listening. It's full of people who are now in danger of drifting away. People who are strong perhaps in the early faith but now just are drifting away. And be, be determined that you yourself will cling to Christ, continue your faith in him, for he is the only saviour worth speaking about in human history. And be determined to remain in that faith yourself and be term, determined to help others do the same. Friends, that is what church is really about. That's why you come to church each week. Not just to hear from God, but to help others, protect others, help people to cling to the faith that they first expressed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have saved us in the Lord Jesus, through the Lord Jesus. And yet, Father, we know also that some of us doubt, some of us struggle. Others have friends that do that. We know that there are friends here that are not here today, perhaps because they might have drifted away. So please help us do two things. Please help us to determine to continue in the faith ourselves, but also to be determined to help others do the same. For we know that's why you created your church, through your son. So please help us cling to those things and do those things, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.